2 Timothy 3.16 is a verse everyone should know. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is inspired by God. It's God-breathed. If someone ever asked you who wrote the Bible, you should say two things. God wrote the Bible and man wrote the Bible. Never be afraid of that. God is not afraid of the human instrument. Look at me. I'm up here today. right? You all came to hear from God. You all came to hear Romans 8. But I am the instrument God is using. You are the instrument God is using at times. And God's not afraid of the human instrument. One of the great and fascinating studies you can ever undertake is the miracle of the inspiration, and don't forget this, the preservation of the scriptures, the Bible written thousands of years ago, sitting on our laps tonight. It is a fascinating study. All scripture is God-breathed. Holy men of old wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit of God. And we have these 66 books. Genesis to Revelation, inspired, inerrant. Now here's why it was written. It was written for doctrine, for teaching. We need that, right? We need salvation by faith. We need teaching on the Holy Spirit and salvation and, and all these wonderful doctrines, right? It's written for doctrine. It's written for rebuke, for correction, and most importantly, I believe, for instruction or training in righteousness. Here's why. That the man of God, the woman of God, might be complete, not lacking for any good work. There's something about Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, that completes us. Kent Hughes wrote one of the great books on preaching I've ever read. This is what Kent Hughes believes. He believes every portion of Scripture, every verse, every chapters, even books you don't read, like Numbers or the first seven chapters of Leviticus, has what he calls a fallen condition focus. Here's what that means. Every portion of Scripture, when you read it, has something that corrects the fallen nature in every one of us. It's like James says, we look into the perfect law of liberty and the mirror of the imperfections, right? It's like a man looking in the mirror. And the older you get, the worse it is to look in a mirror, right? You look in the morning and your face hasn't dropped yet and the lines are there and it's getting harder and harder to look in that mirror and you see all the imperfections. And then you go to one of these high-end hotels and they have that round mirror for the ladies, I guess, to pluck out their eyebrows or whatever they do. And guys kind of look at that thing and they think, let me take a look in there. And it's like, oh my gosh, I didn't think it was that bad. <laughs> so you look into the perfect law of liberty and there's something correcting. But, but please, oh my gosh, if there's any burden I have, please understand this. When you look into God's word, when you sit under teaching, when you read the book of the Bible, there is this tweaking, there is this conviction, there is this correction but always comes with this God lifting off our shoulders the heavy burdens. In other words, God is looking at us like his children. He's saying, you know, this is out of joint. This needs to be corrected. But there's always that uplifting sense that through grace that God's going to bring it to pass. Is there conviction? Absolutely. Is there correction? Yes, David was corrected by Nathan and it did him a world of good. Is there instruction in righteousness? Yes. But you know there's one thing there should never be? And Paul writes this in Romans 8, verse 1. Some of you, this will become your life verse. But there should never be any condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus, walking according to the flesh and not according to the Spirit. 
The one thing that should never happen when you read the Bible or sit under a certain teaching, you should never be condemned. Because God so loved the world, you know the verse, John 3, 16, that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever would believe would have eternal life, never perish. The next verse says God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. The revelation we need is there is no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is writing this, and he's, he's having what I would call a grace explosion. Have you ever had that? Have you ever gone through a season of life where finally the fog has lifted, and you realize God is a God of love and grace, and all of a sudden grace comes along, and it changes everything? If you were in legalism or tradition or under a certain doctrine and you were free, it's all of a sudden the grass is greener, the sky is bluer. And and this is what is happening to Paul. Look at chapter 7, verse 13. Paul's in this dialogue. He says, has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, So that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual. Paul said the problem is I'm carnal, I'm depraved. I'm of a fallen nature. Sold under sin, for what I am doing I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I don't practice. But what I hate, I do. Anybody resonating with any of this? If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. In other words, he wrote in another place, the law is my schoolmaster. It was good for me. I wouldn't know what adultery is, Paul said, unless I had the law. Praise God. Verse 17, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that's lurking in me. For I know that in me, that is my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good. Paul said, I can't figure that out. For the good that I will to do, I don't do, but the evil that I do, I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Only Paul could have written this. I know it's confusing. We're going to get to it in a minute, the understanding. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, in my body, and it's warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity of the law of sin, which is in my members. And he says, oh, wretched man that I am. In another place, he said, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, oh, wretched man that I am. You ever drive in your car and say that? You know, I I drive in my car and I'm like, Lord, I want to add value today. God, I want to love people today. God, I need your grace today. God, I want to treat people well today. And then five minutes in the work or five minutes with my family or there's an altercation and everything's undone and on my next drive I'm like, oh, wretched man that I am. (laughs) But then... Paul writes this, and here's where the grace comes in. Verse 24, O wretched man that I am, 
Who will deliver me from this body of death? See, Paul asked the right question. Sometimes we're asking the wrong questions. Who will deliver me from this body of death? You know what our question always is? How will I get delivered from this body of death? Our entire Christian experience is how to. We never ask who to. It's always how to. In 35 years of following Christ, if I could stack up all the books and all the curriculum and all the manuals, and it never ends, right? Someone's always coming along. You've got to read this, or we're going to this seminar, and here's the key to this, and here's the seven steps to that. And it's all about how to. And for you, for you guys that have had a grace explosion, it's all about who to. Who is going to deliver me from the body of death? And, of course, the answer is Jesus he says it here in verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, so then with this mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin, there is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation. Paul said, I am free. Here's what happens as believers. Uh, we stumble on this notion that we are saved by grace through faith. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And it's counter to everything we've ever heard. How in the world can God accept me if I haven't earned it? And we realize it's through the finished work of Christ. It is finished. It was done. It's complete. And we accept that we're saved by grace. And then we forget we have to live by grace. We need grace every day. We burn a lot of grace. And so we have to realize there is no condemnation. This is the beauty of Romans, but it gets better. And this is why some people think this is the greatest chapter in all the Bible. And I don't think we can elevate one chapter over the rest. But if you're looking for a life verse, that's one, right? There is now no condemnation, but it gets better. Look at verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God... These are the sons of God. First time that idea is mentioned in the New Testament. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father, and you all know that's the Arabic for daddy. God is our daddy. Jesus was revolutionary because he said when you pray, pray this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. There's another life verse. But there's more. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The worst tragedy you will ever experience on this planet will pale in the comparison to what God has planned for each and every one of us. So much so that it says even the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, because of him who subjected it in hope, and it is longing for the redemption. If that's not enough, there's verse 28, maybe the most memorable verse in this chapter. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. All things work for the good. How about verse 31? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's a great life verse. What about verse 35? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, nakedness. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And here comes the granddaddy of them all, 
verse 38, Paul ends by saying, I am persuaded. That word means I am convinced. He's not convinced by knowledge, but through experience, through knowing God. He said, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come. And can I insert my own mind, my own guilt, my own shame? Nor height nor depth nor any created thing shall separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's the bookends of Romans 8. There is no condemnation and there will never be any separation. If you know Jesus Christ, you are his for all time. It's the beauty of this chapter, the assurance of the believer. What Paul is writing here is something we all have to discover, that we are inseparably linked to the God who loves us, to the God who saved us. This is hard to comprehend. We live in a world of turmoil. We live in a world of division. Anybody watch the address last night? We live in a world that's coming apart at the seams. We live in a world that no one's loyal anymore. No one stays together. 50% of the marriages, you know, death until we, death until we part, 50% of the marriages dissolve. People change sports teams. People leave schools and churches. And God has this promise. It's almost like God as a father is putting his arms around us and saying in a world that is cold and dark and hard, we are inseparably linked. And there's nothing that's ever going to change that. Um, there's an illustration I saw at a marriage conference once, but it applies. And the person was illustrating Genesis 2.18, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they become one flesh. And he was trying to illustrate what it means to be joined together in a marriage. But I think marriage is a picture of our relationship with Christ because Paul quotes that verse, Genesis 2.18, four times in the New Testament talking about our relationship to God. And when the person talked to how, about how we are inseparably linked to God, he said we are joined not like a post-it note, which could be easily ripped, right? Nor like an envelope that has to be ripped. The illustration he used was a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> but not the one you just made. The one when you're rumbling through the refrigerator at 12 midnight, you're going to watch Sports Center, the late edition, and you're hungry and you're looking around and there's that little baggie and there's this penicillin looking <laughs> blue moldy thing where the peanut butter and the jelly has mingled together and you can't pull the bread apart. It's a poor illustration, but it speaks of how you and I have the wonderful assurance that there is no condemnation and there will never be any separation. Now, there is a condemnation we need to talk about. And to understand that condemnation, go to Romans chapter 1. Paul writes the book of Romans in 56 AD to tell the Romans about salvation by faith, which is interesting because the church that would come out of Rome would teach works for thousands of years. Many of us were a product of that. But Paul is writing to them and he builds this case. And if you've never read Romans, read the book, pick up a commentary very quickly 
I'll show you a few things. Paul lays an indictment on the entire human race, but he begins in verse 18, where he talks about God's condemnation. He says the wrath of God, or God's judgment, or condemnation, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they, mankind, are without excuse. We call this general revelation. General revelation is the starry heaven above, the moral law inside, the human body, fearfully and wonderfully made. Man is without excuse. We're in a spinning ball in space. Everything works together. Perfect temperature. Perfect ecosystem. Perfect body that heals itself. So man is without excuse just through general revelation. Man must believe there is a God. I've written a series of essays called 21 Reasons Why I Believe in God. And I tried to find things that were eclectic. And I picked bees, for instance. Bees are amazing. I don't know if you know it, but there was a bee on the cover of Time magazine. Bees produce 15, get this, billion dollars to our economy in free pollination of everything you and I eat. Without bees, we would have far less on the kitchen table and in our pantry than we do now. And here's the funny thing about bees. No one knows this, but until 2006, aerodynamically, scientists did not understand how they could fly. They really were, weren't built to fly. They weren't built to do what they do. And then scientists finally figured it out. So just studying something simple like bees, something so simple but so complex, tells us there must be a God. You really have three choices when it comes to the world we live in. God made it. No one made it. Or no one knows how we made it. That's really what it comes down to. God made it, no one made it, or we don't know who made it. But the scripture says man's without excuse. No matter where you are, you must believe there's a God. It's too complex. It's too wonderful. The heavens declare the glory of God. The earth is his handiwork. Day by day, it's telling us someone made this. And so man is without excuse. Will God judge everyone the same? You're not going to like this answer. You're going to think it's heretical. No, he will not. Now, every man will be judged on the man, Jesus Christ. But God will judge everyone according to the revelation they have received. Everyone will be judged on the amount of light that's been shed upon them. But it says that man is without excuse. Now, there's another people group that are condemned. Look at chapter 2. Verse 17, indeed you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God. God called out a nation and gave them special revelation. General revelation is the starry heaven, the moral law, the, the wonderful body, the anthropic principle of how all this works together. But God added on to that special revelation, his word and the commandments and the Sabbath and the law. So the Jews had more to go on 
And they would boast in that. But here comes their condemnation. You know his will, verse 18, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach others, don't you teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through the breaking of the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of the Jew. God gave you special revelation, but the Gentiles aren't believing in you because you're not even keeping the law. Oh my gosh. The Gentiles are condemned. The Jews are condemned. And now you're going to understand this verse in chapter 3. Verse 9, what then? There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have all become unprofitable. There is none that does good, no, not one. If you're on a plane, if you're in a restaurant, if you have time to dialogue with someone, the first thing they're going to tell you is they're a good person. We've all had that experience, right? If you ever want to kind of bring them in, take out a napkin and draw this diagram. Draw a kind of like a ladder and say, God's up here, and uh, who can you think of that's really good? I swear they're going to say Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, or the Pope. (laughs) And then write that person in somewhat down from God. And then tell them to think of someone else and someone else and put it in. And then hand in the pen and say, now, where do you fall out? And they'll always put themselves under all those people. And then you can tell them the gospel, that none is righteous. No, not one. Most people don't read the Bible. You can show them this scripture. If good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell, then why did Jesus Christ come? So the indictments on the entire human race... And then Paul solves the argument in chapter 5, verse 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, Adam, judgment came to all men, resulting in, here's our word, condemnation. See, in Adam, we were condemned. In the day that you sin, you will surely die. There was no hope for the human race. Even So, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. So as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through the righteousness of eternal life that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And now, for you and me, for those those who would accept Christ, there is now, therefore, no condemnation. No separation. That's the good news. You and I have assurance of our salvation. Now, when we talk about assurance, man has done an interesting thing. As he always does, man has to compartmentalize this so he can understand it. 
You know, we don't like living in attention. We don't like mysteries. So we got to figure it out, right? So here's what we've done. We've made people declare that they're in one of two camps. They're either reformed or Calvinistic or they are Arminianist, although no one knows what that really means. What it means is they believe in free will. We've been forced in two camps. Sometimes you'll hear someone say, are you reformed? And it might scare you. And you might think, well, what does that mean to be reformed? And you think, oh my gosh, I have to read Calvin's Institutes. What does that mean? It simply means this. Someone who's reformed simply means that God elected you to salvation. Okay? Now, they came up with this fancy acronym called TULIP. I think it's on the screens for us. The acronym TULIP means this. The T means total depravity of the believer. Now, I believe in total depravity. I believe we come forth from the womb speaking lies. I think those wonderful babies and toddlers down there in Awana are depraved. I really do. <laughs> I raised four of them. I know they're depraved. I was with my daughter Monday at Barnes & Noble. I'm watching depravity all over again. And she's getting a little comeuppance because she was strong-willed and her kids are, and it's kind of neat to watch it happening all over again. <laughs> so I believe in total depravity, but the reformers take it one more step further. Here's what they believe. They believe we're so depraved, we can't even accept Christ. We can't even have faith because if we had faith, that would be works, and we're so depraved, we don't have faith. So we need a new component which they call previent grace. You ever heard that term? So in other words, God gave you previent grace that you could accept him or it would be works. The U stands for unconditional election. What that means is God chose you, but here's the problem. He did not choose others. Now some would say, well, boy, that's not a great doctrine because we would never go out and preach the gospel, but that's not true. If you believe that, uh, the people in the reform camp will say, no, we're still evangelistic because you don't know who God has chosen. Now, I believe in election. I have to believe in election. If I don't believe in election, I have to cut out pages of my Bible, especially Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 says, who God foreknew, he predestined unto election. It also says that I was chosen from the foundation of the world. So I believe in election. I don't believe it's unconditional. The L means limited atonement. Limited atonement means that when Christ died and said it was finished, it was only for the elect. He did not die for those who weren't selected. The I means irresistible grace. In other words, if God chose you, you must come. When Paul was blinded by that light on the Damascus Road, he had to accept. You had to accept. The grace of God is irresistible. And finally, the preservation of the saints. Philippians 1.6, what we committed to God, he's keeping for the final day. In other words, there's nothing we can do to keep our salvation. God is keeping us. Now, the other side is to believe in free will. That we are free moral creatures who can make choices. And if I don't believe in free will, I've got to cut other verses out. Like what I already quoted, John 3, 16, God so loved the world that whosoever 
believes might be saved. Or when Jesus said, come unto me all those who thirst. And many more verses I would have to cut out of Scripture. How do we figure this out? How do we live in the tension? Like I said, man, man has to figure it out. The fact that we can't figure it out, I think it comes from God. I really do. So I want you to look at it in a couple of ways. Number one, many Bible doctrines are a paradox. And again, we don't like to live in attention. Let me give you a paradox. Who lives your Christian life? Paul said on one hand, it's Christ in me, the hope of glory. But then he writes in another place, I buffet my body as a soldier. Is Paul schizophrenic? You know, what's he telling us here? Paul, is it one way or the other? Uh, both can be true, I think. So I think a lot of Bible doctrines are a paradox. There's another thing that might help you live in the tension, and you may have never thought of this. Do you know atheists are determinists? Atheists don't believe we have free will. And you, and you might think that's strange. Why would they think we're determinists? Well, you're constrained to a body. I don't know if you know that. You ever stand on a cliff and the thought comes to your mind to jump? No? Am I the only one? Yeah, I stand on cliffs and I think, I want to jump. You know why? Because we're constrained to this body. We can move arms, we can pick an apple off a tree, but we have to breathe, there's things we have to do. So we're constrained. Stephen Hawking, probably the most famous physicist of all time, said it's hard to imagine how free will can operate if your behavior is determined by physical law. So it seems we are no more than biological machines and that free will is just an illusion. This is one of the smartest guys that ever lived. Um, Dawkins says we're dancing to our DNA. Sam Harris, profound atheist, said, examine your own life and free will is nowhere to be found. These are very smart guys. So even on a natural level, they're saying there's no free will. Now, to understand the sovereignty of God and free will, we don't look at Romans 9 or Romans 12 or Hebrews. We need to go to Genesis. In Genesis, we see God creating the world, something out of nothing. In six days, God saying, let there be light, creating everything we know, resting on the seventh day. God is sovereign. God created the world because he wanted to. He's the prime mover. Then he does something interesting in verse 26. He says, let us make man in our image. Until we get to heaven, and maybe not even there, we will never really understand what that means to be made in the image of God. The Bible says the angels look into that, and they shake their heads. No one gets why God made you and me in his image, nor do we understand the depths of what that means. So God places Adam and Eve in a garden. He gives them all the variety of fruit, and he lays one restriction on them. And the restriction is, you may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, people look at that, and they say, well, look at God. He's restrictive. Look at God. He's restricting our freedom. Wait a second. He gave us all the other trees. What God did by placing them in the garden was to give them human dignity. Think about this. Created in the image of God, we are creators. We are thinkers. But God had to give one form of restriction so that man might use his ability for moral choice. 
Love demands a choice. And God made man in such a way that man could even choose against God. By the way, all of you who had children, you made a very interesting choice. You brought children into the world. The day you brought them into the world, you made a decision that one day they could choose against you. And that's what God did. He made us moral beings with free will and free choice. Now, he restricted that choice. We are restricted to a body. We are restricted like kind of the guardrails in the garden. But God gave us a moral free will that we could even choose against him. The last thing I'll say on this subject was written by Tozier. He was brilliant. I don't know if you're going to understand it. It might take a while. Tozier said this, God sovereignly decreed that man should be free to exercise moral choice, and man from the beginning has fulfilled that decree by making his choice between good and evil. See it play out every day. When he chooses to do evil, he does not thereby countervail the sovereign will of God, but he actually fulfills it. Inasmuch as the eternal decree decided not which choice the man should make, but that he should be free to make it. If in his absolute freedom God had willed to give man limited freedom, who is there to say, stay his hand or say, what doest thou? Man's will is free because God is sovereign. A God less than sovereign could not bestow moral freedom upon his creatures. He would be afraid to do so. So God has given us free will. And part of that free will was to choose God. And when you chose God, it was finished. And there is now no condemnation. If the voice of condemnation ever comes to you, it is not of God, it is of the devil. We see Satan speak three times in Scripture. Every time he's either accusing God to man or man to God. He comes to Eve and he says, has God said that you can't eat of this tree? In other words, God's restricting you. God knows in the day you eat of this, you will be like God. You'll know good from evil. God's holding out on you. Choosing God to man. Next time he speaks is in Job. God's bragging about Job. There's none like Job. He's the most righteous man in the East. Look at Job. Have you considered my servant Job? Satan comes, says, skin for skin. Job only serves you because you bless him. Take away all his blessings. He'll curse you to your face. Second time he speaks, he's... He's condemning man to God. And then, of course, Jesus in Luke 4, the three times where he's tempted. And so condemnation is always the voice of Satan. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. I knew there was a catch. Uh-oh. I'm in Christ Jesus, but I still walk according to the flesh. Now, commentators will say, well, you know, in some of the ancient texts, that wasn't really there. I hate when they do that. I really do. Because it's later in verse 4 again. Um, think of it this way. The Old Testament is like a picture book of the new. I don't know how many of you have been to the book barn in Westchester. It's one of my favorite places. Four level of old books. And there's a section of there of pop-up books. I'm fascinated with pop-up books. I don't know if they make them anymore. I think there's a Harry Potter pop-up book. 
But in the book barn, there are 50 or 60, and some of these are three and $500. They are massive. The Old Testament is a pop-up book of the New Testament. It really is. And the story of Noah fascinates me because God's going to judge the entire human race. And then he decides to spare Noah. It says Noah found grace. Genesis 6-8, in the eyes of God. First time the word grace appears in Scripture. And you know the story. God spares Noah and his family. And for 100 years he's preaching you know, righteousness. He's got a hammer in one hand, the Bible in the other. And then the day comes and God says, Noah, come into the ark. By saying come into the ark, God was in the ark. If God said go into the ark, God would have been outside of the ark. God said come into the ark. And it said God closed the doors. And condemnation and judgment came, but Noah and his family was spared. Why? They were in the ark like we are in Christ. So how do we get around this? There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, but it seems like there's a caveat, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of, in Christ Jesus has freed me from the law of sin and death, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, and he condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, God condemned Jesus that we might be free. That the righteous requirement, verse 4, of the law might be fulfilled in us, here we go again, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And because the carnal mind is an enemy of God, and it's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Boy, is that a buzzkill. Had you guys all excited, right? There's no condemnation, no separation. But now if you're in the flesh, you can't please God, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, I've been in the flesh all week. I've been in the flesh today. I, oh, right? Right? There's this condemnation. It's kind of like hockey, you know. We lie or we do something we shouldn't do, and we kind of want to put ourselves in the penalty box or think God put us in the penalty box, and oh my gosh, I can't please God because I'm a carnal Christian. Listen. What these verses are saying is, what is your bent? What is your life bent towards? From the day I received Christ, I woke up every day with what I call Jesus on my brain. If I'm in a car ride for you, with you for 20 minutes, I might talk about the eagles and politics and food or whatever, cheesesteaks, great things like that. But sooner or later, we're going to talk about God, right? Because that's what our bent is. Until the day I accepted Christ, I never talked about God. I might have talked about theories or things I may have thought I knew about God. So my natural bent is to be spiritually minded. And that's why the next verse is so important. Verse 9, he says, but you are not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit. Can I speak those words over you tonight? You are not in the flesh. You're in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of God, he's not his. Listen, the law appears all over chapter 7. 
But 18 times in chapter 8, we see the word spirit. The Holy Spirit is the down payment Paul wrote to the Corinthians. It is the proof that you are his. The spirit who makes utterances and groanings when we don't know what to pray. The spirit who whispers to you. And when you read the scriptures, you wouldn't be here tonight if your bent wasn't towards the spirit. There are people that take these verses out of context and say, you are a carnal Christian if you do this, that, or the other. And what they're doing is putting condemnation on you. Now, if you're doing the things you shouldn't do, then the scripture should convict you. And you should understand there's confession and there's forgiveness. But it should never condemn you. There is no such thing as a carnal Christian. It's an oxymoron. There is no existence of that such person. What Paul is saying here, and I'm going to close with this, and this is why it's going to take four weeks. You knew we weren't getting far tonight, right? The parable of the soils. You have to look at Luke's version. He's the only one that says this. The man cast the seed, right? The one on the hard soil, the seed that went on the hard soil, it said that Satan came, the fowls of the air, Satan came and stole the seed, only Luke writes this, lest they believe and be saved. So now we know the parable's about salvation. Sometimes you'll hear the parable taught like, you know, so-and-so's hard ground, this guy's rocky soil, this guy's good ground. No. The one on the hard ground never came to salvation. Now, it gets tricky because the seed sown on rocky and thorny ground endured for a while. But when trials and tribulations came, they received the gospel with great joy. But when trials and tribulations came, when stress came, when the sun came up, they had no root or thorns came, and they produced no fruit. And then there was the good ground that produced 30, 60, and a hundredfold. For those who have truly given themselves to Christ, you are the good ground. You are the poems God is writing. You are his, producing 30, 60, and a hundredfold. Sometimes you're in a dry season. Sometimes you're stuck. We're talking about that on Sunday mornings. Sometimes you might be indifferent to the things of God. Sometimes you're going through a struggle, a great loss. We talked about some of these things on Sunday. But by and large, you have been freed from the law of sin and death. The day the Holy Spirit came into you, the day you were regenerated, and you are his. And if you're his, you've been freed from the law of sin and death. And if you put yourself in the penalty box, it's you, it's not God. He's not putting you there. God wants to restore you. He wants you to confess. He wants to bring you to an expected end. It's all about the long run, guys. You're going to see people fall on the wayside, and we don't know what their story was. And listen, we're not called to be the God police. We're not to say, oh, you know, Joe, he was walking with God one day, and now he's sitting on a bar stool. He must have been on rocky soil, right? Jesus said, look, don't separate the tares and the wheat. Don't try and figure it all out. Just keep blinders on. Keep your eyes on the road ahead. This is all we need to know tonight. There is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. He was condemned for you and for me. That's what grace means. And there will never be separation. Well, what about if somebody commits suicide? Heaven. Heaven. 
I think a believer can get to the depths of despair and commit suicide. Now, don't go out thinking about that. Don't think that's a way out. <laughs> but I believe somebody, you know, you know we're hardwired. We, there's mental illness. There's all kinds of things going on in this body. There's no condemnation. There's no separation. The thief on the cross, this day you'll be with me in paradise. And what you've given to God, he's holding to the end. And it was never about you, and it never will be about you in the end. It wasn't about what you would, you didn't bring anything to the table. You didn't, there's nothing you're contributing. The beauty is we're watching this story unfold. We're watching, you know, we're working out this salvation with fear and trembling. We wouldn't be here tonight. And I understand there's parts of the church that give people false assurance. You know, walk this aisle, say this prayer, you're in. I get all that. You know, Billy Graham said only 10% of the people he think ever walked an aisle actually got saved. But the other side is worse, and I've been there. Where people will tell you, if you don't do this, if you don't do that, if you don't measure up. So for the four weeks, we really want to unpack Romans 8. We want to make this whole chapter a life chapter. And we want to live in the beauty of our assurance so that we can get free of all this stuff that we can freely live for God. Sound good?